Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, does anyone not know Nancy Pearl? For years, she's told NPR and KUOW listeners what to read with a kind of care and insight that's made her a household name. There's also a decent chance her action figure is on your desk or bookshelf right now. Oh, but there are things we did not know. Now there's a new Nancy Pearl. The peerless recommender of novels we'll love has written one herself. Here's how this all happened. On the best day of her life, Nancy Pearl had foot surgery. It was not Bunyan's. And while high on pain medication, two characters came to her. For years, she thought about them. They stayed with her and were real to her. So she found a way to tell their story by writing, she says, the kind of book I love to read. While Nancy Pearl does not lack the qualities of human interaction, as you'll hear here, it's fair to say books are everything to her. She's said as much. Quote, it's not too much of an exaggeration, if it's one at all, to say that reading saved my life. Nancy Pearl joined Katie Sewell, co-host of the Bittersweet Life podcast, to read from and discuss her debut novel, George and Lizzie. The Seattle Public Library's Central Library hosted the event in partnership with Town Hall Seattle on September 5th. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, SPL's Stesha Brandon introduces the conversation. I am delighted to introduce Nancy Pearl and Katie Sewell. I have been lucky enough to call Nancy a friend for, I counted this up, 14 years now. And over the years, uh, she has recommended thousands of books, written several of her own, and created amazing programs all over the world that helped connect readers with books and with each other. When she told me that she was thinking of writing a novel, I was absolutely thrilled because all of the best writers are readers through and through, and that's who Nancy is at her core. She regularly comments on books on NPR's Morning Edition and on KUOW-FM in Seattle. Uh, Lots of you know that she was executive director at the Washington Center for the Book here at the Seattle Public Library until 2004, where she created the now super popular One Book, One City program, Seattle Reads. And among Nancy's many honors and awards are the 2011 Librarian of the Year Award from Library Journal and the 2011 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association. She also hosts a monthly television show, Book Lust, with Nancy Pearl. Nancy will talk tonight with Katie Sewell. Katie is a radio producer and host. She has spent well over a decade working at KUW Public Radio as a producer and host, most notably as the lead producer of Weekday with Steve Scher. Throughout the years, she's also worked with Radio Lab and toured with a Prairie Home Companion. She's currently co-host and senior producer of The Bittersweet Life podcast and a podcast consultant for Hire. They will be discussing Nancy's debut novel, George and Lizzie. George and Lizzie is the story of a marriage and the story of how someone grows into themselves and in doing so, grows up. I absolutely loved it, and I'm so excited that you'll get to read it now, too. Please help me welcome Nancy Pearl and Katie Sewell. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thanks for coming out on a night when the skies are raining ash down on our city. Um, But more importantly, the night when Nancy Pearl's first fiction book enters the world. 
I say first without asking if you're planning on doing another one, but I just want to read two reviews that okay. came out, very short, of what other people are saying, and then I'm going to hear what you want to say. Okay. So the Washington Post wrote of this book that George and Lizzie is an extraordinary addition to her portfolio, a sensitive and entertaining novel. And Publisher Weekly writes, George and Lizzie is quintessential Nancy Pearl. Great quirky characters, a laugh out loud sense of humor, and memorable language. And no surprise, you can compile a great reading list from, of book titles sprinkled throughout the story. <laughs> Was that from Publishers Weekly? Yeah, Publishers Weekly. So those are a few of the initial reviews of the book. But I want to know, having been your friend for many years, what it's like for you after writing several nonfiction books to actually have your own fiction book out tonight. Well, it's very weird. And, it's, um, and I had a little glass of wine earlier, so it's even more weird. Um, so, I, so sometimes people have asked me, are you ever going to write a memoir? And, and I'm, I can't write a memoir until my sister dies. But um, <laughs> Well, let's change because, the focus of the interview. Because she objected to the introduction to book lust. So... Um, so, so I'm not going to write a memoir, but I really always thought that the booklust books were, my, were a memoir because they're really a history of my reading, which has always been the center of my life. And so having the booklust books, you know, having Sasquatch publish them, you know, Seattle publisher and how wonderful that was, um, and hearing from readers and all of that, that was just so wonderful. But um, having a novel which is not about me, you know, it is not, I, I need to say right at the beginning, it is not autobiographical. <laughs> I can expound on that, but it, it, but it, is, not, it is not autobiographical. Um, is so much more personal, you know, because these are my characters. I mean, they feel like they're my children. Um, George and Lizzie and, and Marla, who's Lizzie's best friend, and. James, who's her husband, and uh, who's Marla's husband. So it's so different. It's it just like apples and oranges. And I know that you were nervous for it to come out as well. So now that it's out and all of these people could possibly buy it, how are you feeling? More nervous. <laughs> right. Because I know, and, and you know, there are students here from my... Um, because I taught at the University of Washington Information School for, for many years, and there are a lot of students that I've had. And we, we talk a lot in, in those classes about how um, everybody reads a different version of the same book, that no two people ever read a book the same, that you bring yourself and your life and where you are at that moment to the book. And so, and, and people have different, different needs from a book that they're reading. You know, they, they, I mean, this is why you don't like a book sometimes at a particular time and you'll go back and find that you like it at another time, is because you're, you, you need something from a book that at that moment, that particular book is not giving to you. So I, I feel like I know better than anybody, um, uh, better than many people, that there are gonna be people who are gonna find this book which has a particular um, narrative structure, or you know, it's very character-driven. Not the kind of book that they would want to read right now. 
but I'm hoping that maybe in a month or two they'll want to read it. <laughs> and at the same point, these are your children. Right. So yes. if people say something negative about your baby. Yes, yes. Right. Right. But luckily, I'm not reading anything negative. I, I have a designated negative reader in my house. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, right let's be introduced to your two okay. some, and then we'll, we'll go on from here. Okay. Meet George and Lizzie. So, um, so it's, it's always interesting to me, because I've spent so much time interviewing authors, how people choose what they're, what they're going to read from. And, it, and I thought when I was thinking about what, what section I should read from, that the best section would be just the beginning of the book, so you can meet the characters and see what you think and, uh, and get a sense of the style. How they met. The night Lizzie and George met, it was at the Bolarama way out on Washtenaw. She was flying high on some awfully good weed because her heart was broken. For the past several weeks, she'd been subsisting on mugs of stoli and popcorn. It was Leon Daly who told her that drinking vodka uh, that had been kept in the freezer was what got you through the bad times. Lizzie had known with a small part of her brain that still seemed to work during the difficult months since Jack McConaughey disappeared from her life that Leon meant bad times due to football injuries. He was then the right defensive tackle on their high school team. But Lizzie figured what the hell, anything to numb Anything to mellow the sadness was worth a try. So vodka, taken directly from the freezer and poured seemingly nonstop down Lizzie's throat by Lizzie herself, had infected her arms and legs and brain with welcome numbness. She could see how it might even improve her football game. The popcorn was her own idea. But Marla, tired of the emotional and physical sloppiness of her roommate and best friend's drunkenness, and engaged as she was to the campus supplier of superior dope, as well as being a major pothead himself, suggested Lizzie switch. Good plan. After only a few days, it was clear to Lizzie that for what she wanted, weed was the drug of choice. Lizzie had never been in the Bolarama, or any bowling alley for that matter. During the years when she might have gone as a kid, her parents had insisted that Sheila, her babysitter, take her to ballets, museums, libraries, operas, theaters, and planetariums. Marla had dragged her to the bowling alley because she loved Lizzie, and she was exhausted by sharing an apartment with someone whose broken heart still showed no signs of mending, though months had passed. Marla thought that bowling, an activity far removed from their normal lives, might bring Lizzie to her senses. And was she ever right? Lizzie was immediately entranced. The noise, the swoosh of the balls hurtling down the alley, although she didn't yet know it was called an alley. The satisfying thunks when the ball reached its targets. The excited yips and haze of the bowlers. Those cunning shoes with the numbers on the back. The smell of the place, a combination of stale beer and sweat and a hint of talcum powder, weird. Those tiny pencils, fabulous. And those balls, some black, some zigzagged with color. On the other hand, 
George was high as a kite on happiness and pride because he was not only out on a date with the current woman of his dreams, but he was also about to bowl the best game of his life since 1982 when he was 12 years old. In October of his first year in dental school, George developed a serious crush on Julia Drasnan. Julia was beautiful and had an intelligence um, that was said to be stratospheric. It was rumored, although never confirmed, that she had gone straight into dental school after her junior year at Bryn Mawr. She was the subject of both the waking and sleeping dreams of her fellow students, some of whom had already dated her. You could see Julia and her current boyfriend at the movies, rollerblading on spring evenings in Ann Arbor, or sitting around in coffee shops, talking animatedly. The word on Tooth Street was that she'd go out with you for a few times and then let you down gently while explaining that she didn't intend to get serious about anyone until after she'd established her practice several years in the future. This left many of her suitors emotionally bereft. George intended to change all this. Before he finally asked Julia out, he considered several options for what they should actually do on the date. Whatever they did had to be unique and sophisticated, or ironically quotidian, that was the main thing. George immediately rejected fishing in the Huron River, much better for a second or third date, he felt. A concert, not original enough, and that old standby dinner and a movie, ditto. So what was left? Bowling was left. George would give you odds that not one of their fellow dentists-to-be had taken her bowling. It would be great, right? even though he himself had not been bowling in, let's see, almost a decade. But the good times he'd had in bowling alleys were among the many pleasant memories from George's childhood. All right, so I'm gonna skip ahead because it's, 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 it's too long. Okay, so here's, okay, so. And now Lizzie was at the Bowlerama, stoned on dope from James, and George was there stoned on happiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Marla instructed Lizzie on the intricacies of scoring, although she immediately assured Lizzie that she wasn't expecting her to actually keep score. That, was, that would be Marla's job. While Marla talked on, Lizzie was, mumbling score, <laughs> Lizzie was mumbling score, spare, and strike over and over because she liked the sound of the words in her mouth. Marla showed her where to stand and demonstrated how to send the ball spinning down the alley. Lizzie thought alley was a funny word in this context and added it to her mantra, so it now read, alley, score, spare, strike. Then she decided that it sounded better as sass, score, alley, spare, strike. She didn't seem able both to remember those four words in that order and at the same time listen to Marla's explanations. This is likely the reason that she hadn't really gotten the sense of what send the ball spinning down the alley actually meant. In any case, it appeared that she interpreted send somewhat differently from how Marla intended she should. So, I'm going to skip a little bit too. So Lizzie went up to the foul line, which Marla had carefully pointed out to her, for her first try at bowling. They'd agreed that it was best if Lizzie didn't attempt the much more complicated option of starting further back and taking three strides to the foul line. 
Neither she nor Marla was confident that Lizzie could coordinate walking, carrying the ball, counting the steps, stopping at the right spot, and then throwing the ball, especially because she was still occasionally mumbling, score, alley, spare, strike. She stood there with the ball held out in front of her, thumb in its correct hole, two middle fingers in theirs. Her palms were sweaty. She didn't notice that George was lining up to bowl, and in any case was unaware of the protocol that if someone in the lane next to you is getting ready to bowl, you should wait until the ball has left his hands to begin your turn. There they both were, Lizzie and George, in their separate worlds, surely a clue to what their future relationship would be. George steps toward the line, brings his arm forward, and smoothly lets go of his ball. And at the same moment, Lizzie tries to throw her ball spinning down the alley. But something immediately goes wrong, or right, depending on what's important to you. Lizzie's ball hits the floor with an awesome crash and somehow leaps over the ball return mechanism that separates the lanes and crashes right into George's ball, which until that moment had been rolling straight and true toward what certainly looked like an imminent strike. And now both balls make their separate but causally related ways to the gutter. And then it goes on. Well, I was going to save this for later in the interview, but since we started with her being high after being drunk, I, I want to say that part of uh, this book that might be surprising to some of these people is that not only is there a lot of sports in the book, there's also a lot of references to sex in the book and the drugs. Right. Which, given your public persona as a rock star librarian right. in Seattle, might not be what they're expecting <laughs> from you. Well, rock star. Right. <laughs> It depends on which you're emphasizing, the librarian or the rock star. No. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, did you feel um, any kind of the weight of what people would be maybe expecting from you versus the flaws or delights <laughs> of your character, depending on how you look at it? So, um, no, I didn't. Um, that is, so let me say again, this is not autobiographical. <laughs> um, I, Lizzie and I share a love of poetry, and we share a love of reading, and we share a love of the particular poets that appear in the book. Um, we, and so we share a lot of external, um, external parts of our lives, but Lizzie is her own person. And, um, and, and so the, the way this book happened, the way Lizzie and George sort of appeared to me, is that I had had, <clears throat> about uh, five or six years ago, I had had foot surgery, and it was very early, uh, the, the, uh, it was done at Northwest Hospital, and you know we were there very early, early in the morning, and the doctor did the surgery, it was on both feet, and it wasn't, um, it was not bunions, but it, it was a, another kind of surgery. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, for some reason, it seems important to me to say it wasn't bunions, but <laughs> I don't know why. Um, so, and so when the surgery was done and, you know, she sent us home, she sent us home um, with pain meds. And she had, um, you know, she, she had given me, you know, I had taken some pain meds 
in the, in the hospital just before I left, and she said, "Now you know, take them every four hours for the pain." So I, you know, we drove home, and I, it, you know, every four hours I took another pain pill, and um, and that night is about you know 10:30 when I sort of made my way upstairs to the bedroom to go to sleep. I turned and said to my husband, I said, this has been the best day of my life. <laughs> and then, and then I was lying in bed thinking, oh my gosh, why couldn't every day be like this day? And, and these two characters came into my head. And one was George, I knew, I, you know, one was George, and one was Lizzie, and I knew Lizzie's last name, it was Boltman, and I knew where they met, and I even, I knew they met at a bowling alley in Ann Arbor, and I even knew that whole scene of the balls colliding. And I didn't know anything else, but that's what I knew. And so, and, and so what happened was that for, Years after that, I didn't write anything down, but I thought about Lizzie and George all the time, and I, I just, you know, they were, they became the most real thing and the real people in the world to me, and I would, um, you know, I, I go for walks every morning, and I walk down like 17th by the university in front of those sorority and fraternity houses, and I would think, Oh, what would Lizzie think about this? And you know, or I would make some cookies, and I think, oh, would Lizzie like these cookies? Or you know, I mean, it was all that kind. They were so real to me, but I still didn't write anything down. I was just, you know, I would rewrite. I would tell myself at night the stories about Lizzie and George. And so, by the time I finally, you know, sat down and started writing it, it was almost like I was debriefing. You know, it was all just there, and I was just trying to get it down on paper, and, and that's when, on paper, on the computer, and that's when it got hard. Right. When did you actually admit to yourself finally that you weren't conjuring a book, you were actually writing a book? Um, so, that, so that's a good question. Um, I, think, I think that the reason that I sat down and started writing it you know, as readers, we sometimes go through these lulls where we can't find books that we absolutely, you know, that are exactly what we're looking for. And we, you know, you must have that experience. You pick up a book and you start it, and no, it's just not for you, and you put it down. I think that I had gone through a long period like that, or was in the midst of a long period of not finding a book that I loved. and. You know, my favorite writers were either now dead, like Laurie Colwyn, or weren't writing fast enough, like Ann Tyler, um, or Laurie Moore, you know. they. And so I, I just started writing it down for me, you know, and I just didn't write it. I, you know, what I was writing wasn't in any chronological order. It was just what was in my head at that moment, and I would... Um, and then I would just put it down on paper, and then as that sort of pile, more, you know, that computer file grew, I, I thought, well, maybe this could be a book. Um, is that where the structure of the book comes from? There's no, yes. there's, uh, yes. the book is set up so that there, the chat, there aren't like official chapter breaks. It's sort of like 
short headings that come anywhere on the page and it jumps in time a little right. bit. Right. Um, and so is that how you decided to put it together that way? So yes, because I didn't write it in any, you know, I didn't write it chronologically, although the first thing I wrote was the first chapter of the book, what became how, that how, how they met. Um, but mainly I would just write whatever was at the forefront of, of my mind. And the great, um, the great thing that, that I, I had a wonderful editor at Touchstone Books, Tara Parsons, and the great thing I think that Tara did was, um, was, was say, let's make George and Lizzie's story in chronological order. You know, let's shuffle all these little things that you have and let's make George and Lizzie's story in chronological order. And then, you know, there's a lot of going back into Lizzie's childhood, going into George's childhood, various other things about their relationship. But we meet Lizzie and George as, as the book begins from the moment they meet. And then we follow them for about 10 years. One of the things I was telling Nancy that I was impressed with with this book was that she plays with time in a way that I haven't read for a while, where she will sometimes tell you how everything's going to work out before you've even heard what, what she's talking about. Um, I found a very short example, yes, okay. which is not the biggest example in the book of it, but you have a line that says, even after he got famous, George still laughed at his own jokes. And at this point, we have no idea that George is going to be famous. Like, as far as we know, George is just a dentist, you know? Right. So, how did, that seems tricky to me because you're doing the reveals along the way. Um, so that's the kind, so I wrote, it, I mean, I, I really wrote the kind of book that I love to read. So it's a little bit quirky. You know, it has some quirky characters. It's not necessarily um, narratively straightforward. And I love, I love, um, I love seeing what's going to happen to the characters, and then watching it play out. So really, everything in the book is is the way I would like that. You know that I like to read that way, and I know that. Um, um, so I have to say, George is a dentist, but he becomes a motivational speaker because. <laughs> Because he is just, he has married Lizzie, and, you, and I'm not giving anything away, but, but he's married Lizzie, and Lizzie, for various reasons <clears throat> that become clear in the book, is not an easy person to love. She's, you know, sort of, um, um, she's not happy. Yeah, I was going to say sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, not, she's not particularly happy, and she um, doesn't believe in love. And she certainly doesn't believe in marriage. And, and George has this very, um, you know, if you read the review in the Seattle Times, which was just so wonderful and a little bit anti-George, um, which, which is great because, because George has been getting entirely too much, you know, <laughs> appreciation from various people, let me say. Um, <laughs> So, um, so, so George becomes a motivational speaker because he believes that everything is an opportunity for growth. And he tries to convince Lizzie that she could be happy if she accepts that, that everything is an opportunity for growth. And Lizzie fights him every, every inch of the way, you know, through the last page of the book. 
Um, but George becomes a very famous motivational speaker, writes many books, you know, very popular on college campuses and is, you know, many people's guru, but, you know, Lizzie is his one failure and uh, she takes pride in that. <laughs> when you say that. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I mean, another thing that you're doing too is that you often will put a, a character's perspective in, even though it's not told, for, like, look, it's not a story told from Lizzie's point of view, but I pulled another one. So this is like where you're telling her perspective, but it's not told from her point of view. <clears throat> this is what you wrote. They were exactly at the right heights so that they could walk with Blake's arm around Alyssa's waist and her head on his shoulder. They were in step, left foot, right foot, left foot, not missing a beat. It was disgusting, really. <laughs> well, that's Lizzie who says it was disgusting. Um, I have to say that I had the, I, I got to read um, the audio book, um, which was a, just a wonderful experience to, to, um, for, for me to do that. And, um, you know, Blake and Alicia, those are George's best, George's best friend from Tulsa and his girlfriend and then wife, Alicia. And, you know, Alicia's, you know, blonde and very, you know, perky. And um, she goes to Oral Roberts University. And, you know, Lizzie just thinks she's like, and I named her after an Alicia that I really dislike. <laughs> I'm not going to say that anyplace else, but I, I will say that here. Not in, not in Seattle. It's not a Seattle Alicia. Well, since we're, well, we have about 10 minutes before I'm going to open the floor okay. to any questions, but okay. I do want to get into Sorry. the literary aspects of this oh, good. book. Okay. Um, first, I want to start with your own advice. If yes. anybody who's paid attention to Nancy Pearl for years knows that she believes that when it comes to reading, time is short, right. and that if you aren't in love with a book by the 50 pages in, uh, you should just put it down and start something else. Right. Never plow through to the end. And that, that 50 pages gets shorter and shorter the older you get. Like, right. you have to read less and less. So I was just wondering, does that put an extra pressure when you're writing a fiction book that that first 50 pages has got to be... A top-notch. Top-notch. Right, right. Um, you know, I just didn't ever think about... I, I really didn't think when I was putting this all down, when I was typing all of this, that, um, that it would be judged. You know, I was the only judge of it. And, um, and I was kind of doing what I wanted to do. But I'm very happy to say that, like, page 50 is really good on this. <laughs> like, on page 50 begins this section called What We Need to Know About George. And it, and it begins, I'll just give this little, little thing. George rarely got annoyed at anyone, never at his patients, even if they obviously weren't flossing enough. <laughs> and it got, and, and, and so here's how like, um, here's how like that they came, here's an example of like how they came to me and I was like powerless to do anything but write but write their lives down as they kind of told me about it, which was that I don't even, I apologize in advance to any Georges here, but it's not a name that I would have chosen for a character if I had the choice. I mean, if I were like making up a character, his name wouldn't be George, I don't think. 
But you are making up the character. No, but it didn't feel that way. I know, that's what's weird. It sounds very woo-woo, but it isn't. Um, and George is a dentist, and, and, um, and I've no dentists in my family, but it, I found it very easy to make up dental jokes. Yes, Nancy's always been a big fan of the pun, in my right. experience. Yes. The, the yes. pun and the... Many puns. What's the joke you wanted to say about that door? Oh, you know, remember when Stesha was saying that the door is not going to be a door? That reminded me of that joke about when is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Yeah. Yeah. We were going to open that way, and we forgot. Oh, it's crazy. Anyway, so <laughs> these books... Uh, in, in your true, um, one of the things I've always marveled about you is your ability to remember. Oh, did you have a pun you wanted to read? I'm sorry. Did no, I, no, no, okay. no, 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 um, no pun. It's your ability to remember authors, what they wrote, you know, the books. That's right. been one part of the magic of what you did when you were on weekday all the time and right. um, on the rest of NPR. Um, and your characters, same way. They, they are, Lizzie's always reading, and uh, I think it's her best friend that knows how to recommend the perfect gift for somebody. Right. And she can pull the perfect book right. um, if you're giving a Christmas present to somebody you've never met before. Right, but she does also include, like, a possibility of giving a Harry and David fruit gift right. fruit back. Right. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering, um, you know, their behavior is influenced by books. Your characters are. Do you find that your behavior is also influenced by things that you read? Was that an intentional thing that you did? Well, I mean, Katie, nothing was intentional. It's just like <laughs> how it was. I don't know how to explain that any better. Well, what about for you personally? Me, uh, do, you hear, my do you hear the lines of people yes. you've read run through your head? Um, yes, I do. Well, do I? Um, I, I certainly can you know, bring quotes to mind occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I can certainly remember particular scenes that, you know, that are sometimes relevant and sometimes I'll just say them anyway because they're so great, and yeah. whether they're relevant or not. Yeah, yeah. What about, um, can I, this is gonna get really deep into the book. Okay. But they're, they're, if you read all the way to page 130, um, the characters get into a conversation about how one work of one author can influence how another author is read. And oh, the yeah. example that they give is that Emily Dickinson makes you shift how you experience Shakespeare. Right. You're familiar with... Right. So... Now, is, I, I, now okay, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go no, ahead. No, if you have to leave. So what I was going to say is that I actually read that in a book, and that's what I refer to, that one of, that one of the kids, Lizzie has read that in a book, mm -hmm. and she's testing out that theory on George. Yeah. And, yeah. And is that something that you have found true for you? Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I think it sounds bizarre to say that Emily Dickinson influenced Shakespeare, but I think that the way that we read Shakespeare um, Shakespeare is influenced by our knowledge of, I mean, because every, every generation reads Shakespeare differently, and, and Emily Dickinson was, you know, I, maybe this isn't making any sense. On page 130, it makes perfect sense, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, is, does yes. it stand to reason that, that um, People could be, read your book totally differently based on whatever they read before, just from your experience. Well, I think, oh, I yeah, I don't know. Too I have to out? think of, too, yeah, a little far out. <laughs> Rain it in, Katie. Yeah. 
This reminds me, we did this experiment on the radio um, where, remember when we used to have people call in yes. and we would try to say, how did one book lead to another, yes. lead to another, yeah. lead to another? Yeah. I'd still like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. How does one thing influence another, right. another thing? How you choose your next read. That's really interesting. So if you were going to choose your next read after reading George and Lizzie, what would I where do? Where would you go? So I, so I would go to um, the short stories of Laurie Moore, particularly a book called Birds of America. <clears throat> or I would, I would go to um, an, an older Ann Tyler novel called Searching for Caleb. And if you haven't read either one of those, absolutely. Um, and and those, why? What's the connection? Why? So the connection is that Ann Tyler, for many, 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 many years, was my all-time favorite writer. I think she is a fabulous writer, wonderful, quirky characters. And um, Searching for Caleb is my favorite of her books. And Laurie Moore's um, collection of short stories, Birds of America, is probably one of the best written books that I've ever, ever read. Now, I know this organically grew out of you, yes. these two characters, but were there certain writers that you've, you recognize sort of <clears throat> their style in your own style? Um, gosh, um, I would say not directly, but I think that, um, that, that being a reader for my whole life certainly made me write this kind of a book and that writers like Lori Colwin, C-O-L-W-I-N, especially her short stories um, and her novel Shine On, Bright and Dangerous Object, or a more current writer, Catherine Heaney, H-E-I-N-Y, who wrote a collection of short stories called Single Carefree Mellow, or Single Mellow Carefree, one of those. Um, you know, those, those kinds of books which are humorous and, um, and our uh, deal with relationships are, were very influential. All right, I'm gonna open the floor in just one minute, but I wanna ask two more things. Okay. So everybody prepare your questions. Okay. Um, the first one I wanna ask you is, since you always, you've spent you know, a lot of your career recommending books to others, yes. is it possible for you to recommend a book to George and one to Lizzie? Oh my gosh. Um, no, here's why. Because the only way that you can really do a good job recommending a book to somebody is by talking to that person and asking them what they liked about a particular book. Tell me about a book that you liked. That's what I would always say. And, I, and um, so no. And, okay, and then after... Not unless they step out of the book and... Yeah, and I guess my final question would be after... Um, interviewing so many authors. I'm sure it's the question everybody asks you. What was it like when this showed up at your house in a printed form? You know, it was, it was just, um, I just thought that that, 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 that 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 day would never come. I mean, it, you know, it, it's such a long process and, you know, the book gets bought if, if you're fortunate and then you, you know, the, edit, the editor sends you a letter saying what, you know, what changes she thinks the book needs, and then you do those, and it always takes so much longer to get a response um, from the editor, and I would ask my friend Danielle, who's responsible, really, for getting the book published. Um, yes, you are, Danielle. 
um, you know, how come it's taking so long? And she would explain that everything at a publishing company, you know, is done in order. And, you know, the, they deal with the books that were going to be published in August before they're going to deal with this one. So it just seems to take so long. And, and by the time you finally get it, it almost seems like it's a book by somebody else. You know? Yep. And you're Which is lucky. what you need. You're lucky if you get one that looks like you want it to look. I know. With the edging that she wanted so right. badly on the side. Right. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that this is your only work of fiction? Well, um, I think that I need time to, um, to sort of take in all this great fun. Um, what I think I would like to write, maybe, is because the, the, the characters were all born a, around when you were born. They were born around the late 1960s, early 1970s. So in 2017, they'd all be pretty close to 50. And, um, and I think it would be really interesting to look at some of the, the minor characters and see what they're doing now. That's great. Thanks, Thank Nancy. You. Thank you. I Thank didn't you. ask. Now it's your turn to ask questions. Andrea in the pink sweater and myself are going to run the mics to you, though, so that we can pick your brilliant, insightful question up for the recording that we're making. So I would say you get to raise your hands. Nancy will pick, and then we'll run, unless you want us to pick. Oh, you could pick. Sophie's choice. No, OK. OK, questions? Hi. Um, you sort of alluded to my question, but um what is Maverick up to? Oh, so what is Maverick up to? So, um, so Maverick was Lizzie's boyfriend in her junior year of high school. And Maverick grew up in Ann Arbor, and his father was a professional football player. And he had, the father had, it was now coaching at the University of Michigan football team. And Maverick has two younger brothers. And the father laments that um, Maverick, uh, who is a wide receiver, um, is good, but not great. And the second son, Ranger, is great, but not outstanding. And so all the family's hopes are placed in the youngest brother. And so that's one of the questions that I'm really interested in thinking, that I've been thinking about before I go to sleep at night, is how, how, how Maverick, at age 50, who is now um, a sports a writer and on a football podcast, you know, how he's dealing with that sort of fallout from his father's being a disappointment to his father. So that's the kind of thing I'm interested in writing about. More questions? Nancy, what was the inspiration for Lizzie's football scheme? Oh, oh yeah, so... Um, so that's hard to talk about because I, I don't want to give anything away. So I think I won't answer that, Lillian. <laughs> talk to her after the event. Right. Yeah. I have another question over here. What was the most difficult part of writing the book for you? Oh, that's a great question. So the most difficult part of writing the book was 
when I actually sat down and started typing on my computer. And a, a sentence, and remember, I'd been saying these sentences over and over for years in my head, and a sentence would sound absolutely wonderful in my head, and the minute it would be up on the computer screen, it would just seem like the worst sentence I had ever written. And I would, and I'm, I'm, I was like ferociously critical of myself um, and, and my writing. And I know that the, the conventional wisdom is when you're writing a novel, write a first draft and get it down and then tinker with it after, after that. But I couldn't do that. I was rewriting every single sentence as I was putting it down. And, um, and, and, and so there's just sort of this barrage of self-criticism that I would go through because I would write a sentence like, George took Lizzie's arm, which is a perfectly okay sentence. And then I would think, well, where did he take it? <laughs> you know, like, what did she do with one arm? You know, like, how do I deal with that? And I mean, you know, I'm sort of, that's kind of a funny example, but really every single line was like fighting with myself to let it be. And, and I was really lucky that I had some friends that I could sort of send things to and say, does this sound, you know, I mean, is this as badly written as I think it is? Um, and I think you need to, um, I, th I think from my experience in, in this book particularly, um, I think you need to have this balance between believing in, in your work and also recognizing that an editor can really help you make it even better. And, and I had to get to that point of, um, it was torture trying to write because, because of that translation from my mind to the screen. It was hard. That's why it took so long. And then the other thing that, that was hard was that I never considered that it would be published. I mean, I, that was not, for a long time, it wasn't, that wasn't why I was writing it. And so I wasn't concerned with, um, uh, you know, continuity in it particularly, or I didn't have like um, a list of the characters and when they were born. I remember very late in the process sending to my editor, you know, a bunch of emails saying, well, here's when they were all born and here's when they're, you know, here's their birthdays and, um, you know, other things like that. And then saying, if I were a real writer, I probably would have done this right at the beginning. But I didn't. I did it very close to the end. And then I had to keep all the football players straight. <laughs> you know, I had to keep 23 football players, you know, and, and you know, I had to, you know, know what position they were playing and all of that. So all of those things, I didn't, um, I was just doing it because I loved these characters and I loved thinking about them. Yeah, it was hard. Hi, Nancy. Um, did you have other characters who came to you before these did, like when you were younger? Are they uh, still around? 
Yeah, um, I did not, I, I, I wrote a lot of poetry in high school and especially in college. And then the poetry lines that used to come to me as, as poetry started coming as prose, but I've never had the experience of having these two characters, these just so clearly be there and, and, and continue to sort of be with me. Hi, Nancy. I'm wondering, having written this book, is it changing or how is it affecting how you're reading other authors and how you're thinking about other authors? Oh, that's a good question, too. Um, you know, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Reading Like a Writer, Reading a Novel Like a Writer, I think. Um, um, so what it's done for me now uh, is that it's made me much more aware of the choices that writers make at every point in their books. And so I'll be reading and I'll see something happen and, and I'll say to myself, oh, they're doing, she's doing that because later on that's gonna come up. And partly I think I noticed that because that wasn't the way this book came to me. You know, it really felt like in this book, I made no decisions. You know, I made no, it was all, it was all sort of foretold in, in a very strange way. And, and the first section of the book, you know, how they met, and the last section of the book, which is um, the end of many things, those are pretty much exactly how I wrote them. Um, so, but I do read differently now. It's, it's very interesting to me. Hi. Do you remember, can you describe the experience of writing the last word? The, oh, the, ex, the experience, the last word. Oh, yeah. I do read the last paragraphs of book, the last sentence of books frequently. Um, so, so, so I, I had always thought that this book would end very differently. I mean, I, I thought, you know, it's a story of a relationship between two people who are very different from one another and really inhabit different worlds. And, and I had a lot of questions about how they could be married and how they could remain married um, with that you know, having that being so different. And so, and, and, and so the closer I got to trying to write that last section, the less I wanted to write it because, yeah, I thought this was what was gonna happen, but that's not what I wanted to happen. Um, and so I, I um, stopped writing for a long time. That's what also, made it take a long time to sort of finish it. And then I kind of had to wait for George and Lizzie to kind of tell me what was gonna happen. And so the last sentence, the last lines, or the last words in here, the last word is actually home. And, and that's, um, I, think a, um, I think that's a nice last word for a book. I answered that question at all. Oh, 
Hi, Nancy. Um, so I know you talked about these characters coming to you kind of almost on their own. And you also talked about that um, you don't have any dentists in your family, for instance. Right. I'm curious what pieces of the book you found you had to do outside research for, if any. Oh, you know, so that's so interesting because, so what pieces of the book did I have to do outside research for? Um, um, so I went to college in Ann Arbor, like, Lil, like Lizzie did, um, but she lived in a dorm that I did not live in. So I had to use, so, but I, I, so I had to use like Google Earth <laughs> to kind of see where the dorm was and how she would walk across the campus. So there was that kind of research. Um, and um, there's a little bit about the Holocaust in here. Um, Lizzie's grandparents um, are, are affected by that. And so I did a little bit of, of research about that. But it's so amazing that all the stuff that you used to have to go to a, a, a library to, you know, and look for the books, you can basically, you know, sit and do from home. That doesn't mean libraries aren't needed because they're needed now more than ever. We have a question over here. Thanks. So um, you've, you've recommended so many what, thousands of books over the years, and I'm wondering what it was like for you when it came time for you to get uh, blurbs for your own book. Yes. Was it difficult, or were people clamoring to write oh, good so, words yeah. for Nancy Pearl? So, um, so the question was about blurbs, and, and um, Blurbs. Um, <laughs> so, so for many people, when they heard I had a novel coming out, they said, I'd love to read it and blurb it, which was just wonderful. And, um, and one of the people who said that was the mystery writer, Lisa Scottolini. Some of you might read her. So um, I, I've known Lisa Scottolini for many years in 2005 she picked the second Booklust book, More Booklust, to be the Today Book Club pick at that time. The Today Show was doing a book club and, um, and her book had been chosen the month before and then she got to choose the next one, so she chose um, More Booklust. And, she, um, and so they, the Today Show you know, flew me into New York and we were on television together and I always remembered that she was wearing this beautiful Chanel, real Chanel jacket. It was, it was like amazing and you know, but, and her books are so, you know, so much fun. They're thrillers and they're so much fun. And so when she was in, in Seattle, I interviewed her the last time at University Bookstore and I said, you know, I have this book that I finished and it's coming out and she said, oh, I wanna read it and blurb it. I said, oh, it's not a mystery. And she said, oh, that's okay, that's okay. Um, and then she read it and wrote this lovely blurb, which is on the back of the book. But then she wrote me this long letter. And in the letter, she said, she said, um, I just loved the book. And I loved, you know, I just loved, you know, the characters, blah, 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 blah. But I wish I could meet a George. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, that was very nice. Um, uh, uh, Jim Lynch. Who, who I think is one of the best writers writing in, 
writing today, and we're so lucky to have him um, in Seattle, was generous enough to read um, an early, early-ish collection of these sections, and then he blurbed it as well. So it, it's scary. It's, I thought it was very scary to, um, to, to ask. It's not easy for me to ask somebody to do something for me in any case. Um, and to do something like this was, was hard. We have time for just one more question. Oh, that hand went right up. Ah, last question of the night. So a lot of authors in their acknowledgement um, thank their long-suffering spouse and children for putting up with their emotions or whatever time spent away um, while writing their book. So was this experience hard on your husband? What would he say about it? <laughs> we, could, we could ask him, um, oh, but let's okay. not. <laughs> so um, so I've, always, I've always dedicated all, all my books to, to, to my husband Joe, and um, and this one, and this, and this was this came out like our like our 51st anniversary was last week. So that's a long time to be married. I was 11. <laughs> he was a little bit older. Um, so. I don't think it made any difference in his life at all, my writing this book. No, no, it did. I, he, I asked, he, uh, Lizzie's parents are, I'll do this very quickly. Lizzie's parents are psychologists. They're behavioral psychologists, you know, like Skinner and all of that. And, and, and Joe happens to be a psychologist, but not a behavioral psychologist. And um, so I could ask him many, many, um, Many, many, so he gave me many, many words of advice um, and help. And, and I could not have written the book without him. And that is truth. <laughs> and to God. Thank you so much, Katie. And thank you so much, Nancy Pearl. Let's give them one more round of applause. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Nancy Pearl joined Katie Sewell, co-host of the Bittersweet Life podcast, at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library to read from and talk about her first novel, George and Lizzie. SPL hosted the event in partnership with Town Hall Seattle on September 1st. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>